0: Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your Need to Know. Biden blunder, Ukraine shocked as the US president appears to soften his stance on Russian aggression. COVID clamped down, more cases, more restrictions as Beijing battles to protect the Olympics. And solar surge, the EV maker hoping sunlight will help them charge ahead. It's Thursday, let's make a move. Welcome, as always, to our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us for another jam-packed show. Not quite as packed as yesterday, I hope. An exciting start to the business year as firms debate moves to the metaverse and plenty of memorably meta stories for my team to disperse. M stands for monetary surprise. Wall Street now fearing a more aggressive half-point Fed rate hike in March. E for energy price rise. Brent crude near levels not seen since 2020. Fourteen, raising fresh inflationary size. We'll discuss with the head of the International Energy Agency very soon on the show. Tea for turbulent ties. The White House attempts to clarify President Biden's comments yesterday on Ukraine. The latest on Biden's Putin prognostications just ahead and A for abandoned highs. Tech stocks now formally in correction territory ending Wednesday's session down some 10% from November records. U.S. equity market futures, however, nothing to despise. A bit of a bounce after yesterday's across-the-board weakness. A pause in rising bond yields helping sentiment today too, though European shares, I have to say I'm just taking a look at them now, are softer. A mixed session too over in Asia, the Chinese central bank cutting two key lending rates to help counter their latest restrictions and underpin the property sector. Shares of leading Chinese property firms rallying on the news, leading to a more than 3% jump in the Hang Seng too. Plenty to get to this Thursday, and we begin with the tensions over Ukraine. US President Biden sending shockwaves through Ukraine with his Russian comments. The president said he expects Vladimir Putin will, quote, move in, on Ukraine, and while also casting doubt over the strength of NATO's potential response.
1: Russia will be held accountable if it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine.
0: Our Matthew Chance is in Kiev and he filed this report earlier about the reaction there to President Biden's comments. Listen in.
2: Well, to say Ukrainian officials were displeased that President Biden's remarks would be an understatement. One official told me he was shocked to hear the US leader distinguish between an incursion and an invasion and to suggest that a minor incursion uh, by Russia into Ukrainian territory would elicit a lesser response than a full-scale invasion. Now, that sliding scale of punishments may have been discussed privately, but Ukrainian officials saying that that's the first time they've heard that nuance made. Usually US officials like US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was actually here in Kiev as President Biden spoke. um, Talk of crushing sanctions or serious consequences. If there's any kind of military action against ukraine the main concern according to the ukrainian official that i spoke with is that the new remarks may be seen as russia as quote a green light for putin to enter ukraine at his pleasure in other words to stage a limited land grab as has happened in the past with only light u.s sanctions in response well, the White House has been quick to issue clarification of President Biden's remarks, saying that a minor incursion uh, might include something like a cyber attack. But if any, if there's any further seizure of Ukrainian land, that would be seen as an invasion and be met with a swift, severe and united response. Matthew Chance, CNN, Kiev.
0: Let's go to John Harwood now, who is at the White House for us. John, great to have you with us. The The clarification, as Matthew pointed out there from the White House, came swiftly um, to try and help explain what perhaps President Biden was thinking and saying there. But it left a lot of people wondering whether this is what's being said privately, irrespective of whether it should have been said outright in that press conference yesterday. And of course, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken was there in Ukraine and had been speaking to people earlier on in the day. And I'm sure his phone lit up with questions too. Um, John, what do you make of it? And where do you think it leaves the U.S. Secretary of State ahead of his meeting on Friday with the foreign minister Lavrov, Russian's foreign minister on Friday?
3: Well, Julia, I think you framed it correctly. What President Biden said out loud was what Uh, diplomats have been saying privately and what Biden's own aides have been telling reporters on background about uh, how the uh, U.S. and NATO would respond, that there would be a a sliding scale depending on what exactly was done. The question is whether it's wise for the president to say in public what is being said in private. Does that change the course of events? Uh, Did he say anything that Vladimir Putin didn't already know? Uh, it's hard to believe that he that that would be the case because uh, you know there have been extensive discussions and Vladimir Putin has a sense of the politics of uh, NATO and Europe, uh, but that's something that it's hard for us to judge on the outside. Uh, obviously, it upsets the Ukrainians, and that's a significant fact in and of itself. Uh, but uh, uh, this is a, a description of uh, reality, and uh, you know you just have to make the judgment as to whether president should be candid in all situations. Uh, and the White House um, uh, tried to clarify. One of the problems from what Biden said was he, he made a confusing um, discussion with that minor incursion uh, remark. They clarified it later, but uh, the president, of course, could have been clearer in his in his remarks and, and could have been more restrained in his remarks.
0: Yeah, to your point, and I think you said it most eloquently, should you say in public what's clearly being said in private, it's el- injected an element of doubt for the Ukrainians and certainly perhaps given Russia greater leverage going into this meeting, which is the last thing we wanted to achieve. I mean, we're, we're talking about Ukraine as the, the pull-out piece of what was a two-hour effective uh, comment in Q&A from President Biden where there was much news made as well. He's willing to break up chunks of his Build Back Better plan in order to get pieces done. He acknowledged the challenges of handling inflation and that the Fed is in the hot seat there in order to um, try and bring those prices down and get a hold of inflation. Among many other things, um, John, let's cut to the chase. Do you think he's in a stronger position politically and with the public coming out of that Q&A versus going into it?
3: Oh, I doubt that the uh, press conference itself will have much effect on his public standing, which is weak at the moment. What's going to have an effect on his public standing is the success or failure of his efforts to get the pandemic under control. That's job number one. And the second, uh, the effect he can have, uh, to the extent he has any, on the course of the economy. Inflation is something that is proceeding on its own steam uh, at the moment. He uh, may have contributed to it with the uh, size of the rescue plan last year, but that's uh, uh, water under the bridge. The question now is uh, what happens to inflation and what happens to economic growth uh, over the course of the year? And that, of course, is dependent on COVID as well. Those are the things that fundamentally are going to determine his public standing.
0: Yeah. For that, we just have to wait and see. John Howard, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you. Beijing on high alert. Five, five new COVID cases were found in the Chinese capital with only around two weeks to go until the Winter Olympics. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan... It's fascinating to me that the UK is still reporting tens of thousands of cases and they're relaxing restrictions, perhaps for political reasons um, of their own. Beijing has five cases and, as usual, the response is draconian. But then, of course, proximity to the Beijing Olympics, ever closer.
1: Yeah, and and there are two things at play here. Uh, Number one is China has this zero COVID case policy where it's trying to extinguish COVID anywhere it pops up. And secondly, they're two weeks away from hosting the Winter Olympics and they've created what they call a closed loop system. They want a complete parallel universe inside Beijing that the athletes and all the journalists will operate in that will buffer them from the rest of the Chinese population and hopefully protect uh, the Chinese population from COVID being brought in. But how do you do that when China is racing against its own outbreaks, albeit much smaller than anything you would see anywhere arguably else in the world, but still by Chinese standards, it's gotten bigger. Uh, COVID has reached the Chinese capital not just COVID, but Omicron as well. Uh, It was first detected in uh, the city of Tianjin, uh, I believe uh, about a week and a half ago. And since then, Omicron cases have been detected in at least nine cities around the country from the top the bottom. We all know how contagious Omicron is. The methods that China uses to try to extinguish the outbreaks, well, we're seeing them in Beijing. They say that among five new cases in Beijing in the last 25 uh, four hours, that four of them were workers at a frozen food facility, so they lock it down. They lock down the apartment buildings that those workers uh, lived in. Their residents are not allowed to come and go, presumably everybody gets uh, extreme testing as as well. And this has worked in the past uh, to kind of extinguish uh, outbreaks uh, of COVID. Uh, The question is, is as the COVID has been spreading around the country, again, at much smaller numbers, uh, can these same tactics work? And also can they work when you have such large numbers of outsiders that are on the verge of coming in? Some of the measures that China has adopted uh, are They raised some eyebrows. They're trying to disinfect international mail because they claim that the first Omicron case in the country was linked to a parcel sent from Canada. And another thing is they they think that maybe people are getting COVID from frozen food. So they're trying to impose restrictions on these types of imports.
0: Hmm. Whatever it takes, I guess, to control perception as well as hopefully contain the virus. Or not. Ivan Watson, thank you for that. Let me bring you up to speed with some other stories making headlines around the world. A report from Germany has found that former Pope Benedict XVI failed to respond to four cases of child abuse at the Munich Munich Archdiocese when, the, when he was Archbishop. Investigators say he was fully aware that priests had been accused of misconduct despite his long-standing denials. The Vatican says it will examine the report. And CNN's Delia Gallagher joins us now from Rome. Delia, you can take us through some of the details and the implications, but I think for, for many the, the big question here will be accountability and whether or not he'll face charges. He is, of course, a 94-year-old man.
4: Yes, and a retired pope at that. This, Julia, was a major undertaking by the Archdiocese of Munich. Um, It spans a 75-year period. It was commissioned by them, as many uh, Catholic dioceses around the world are doing, for a historical reckoning on sexual abuse. Principal finding, as you mentioned, is on uh, Pope Emeritus, who was Archbishop from 1977 to 1981 in the Diocese of Munich, mishandling four sexual abuse cases. Uh, He denies knowing about those uh, cases. He participated in this investigation um, and provided a sort of lengthy written statement about what he knew and what he didn't know. And the investigators who gave a press conference just a few hours ago Uh, said that they did not find it probable that he did not know about those cases. We should say that the details of those cases are in this report. uh, But just to give you an example, one of the cases alone is 370 pages. So there's quite a lot to dig through in terms of what the exact details are in each of those cases. But another important finding, Julia, has to do with the current Archbishop of Munich, who is Cardinal Marx. Uh, he is a major player at the Vatican and in Germany. He sits on Pope Francis's Council of Cardinals, and he too uh, has been found that he mishandled two cases during his tenure there, which began in 1980. Um, so these are two major figures, obviously, in the Catholic Church who are being accused of having uh, historically mishandled sexual abuse cases. We have the response from the Vatican. We've just had the report about two hours ago, so obviously it will take some time uh, for the Vatican to read through it. Cardinal Marx is due to give a statement in about an hour from now. And in terms of fallout, they asked the question to the investigators. The investigators were a law firm in Germany, so an independent investigation, but commissioned by the Archdiocese of Munich. And they asked them, you know, could there be any potential uh, criminal uh, repercussions on obstruction of justice, for example, or aiding and abetting? Um, They weren't sure about that, but that's certainly a possibility. However, they did mention a statute of limitations, and it would depend on the particular cases, so we'll have to see about that. From the point of view of the Vatican and Pope Francis, uh, what will be interesting to see is, particularly with Cardinal Marx, he's a sitting cardinal, sitting Archbishop of Munich. He actually offered to resign last year uh, because of the sexual abuse cases in Germany, not particularly in his archdiocese. The Pope refused uh, to let him resign. So we'll see in about an hour from now what his response is. We do not yet have a response from the Pope Emeritus, and we'll see what he has to say. Mm, Julia? We'll for that.
0: One hour's time. Thank you for that, Delia. Delia Gallagher there in Rome. The first flights carrying humanitarian aid have landed in disaster-hit Tonga. The island nation is facing food and water shortages following Saturday's violent underwater volcanic eruption. Supplies are being delivered without any contact to prevent the spread of COVID-19. SNN's Blake Essig reports.
5: For several days, Tonga was essentially cut off from the rest of the world because of ash fall and damaged communication lines that likely won't be fixed for several weeks. But finally, some good news. With the main runway of Tonga's international airport cleared of volcanic ash, planes carrying humanitarian aid and disaster relief were finally able to reach the island. Both New Zealand and Australia flew in uh, aid flights on Thursday with Japan also planning flights. The first flight to land carrying supplies came from New Zealand and included water containers, temporary shelters, generators, hygiene and family kits and communications equipment because Tonga has essentially been COVID free throughout the pandemic, Tongan government officials say that today's delivery of supplies was contactless and that the aircraft were only on the ground for a short time to avoid creating a possible COVID outbreak. Now, As a result of the eruption and tsunami, the United Nations says about 84,000 people, that's more than 80% of Tonga's population, have been impacted by the disaster. And information uh, from outer islands still remains scarce. While outside support is now starting to arrive, uh, people on the ground say drinking water is their biggest concern. But that might not be the case moving forward. That's because Tonga's Speaker of the House uh, says the country could be facing a food shortage after farmers told him that all agriculture has been ruined as a result of the massive eruption and tsunami. Blake Essex, CNN, Tokyo.
0: Coming up here on First Move, is Russia holding all the cards when it comes to Europe's gas crisis? We'll hear from the head of the International Energy Agency and power of a different kind, a family-friendly EV that recharges using the sun. And yes, I'll explain what that moss is all about, too, that you can see in the bottom of your screen. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a look at U.S. equity futures to begin. And the tech sector is set to bounce after falling into correction territory yesterday. Just to recall, that's a 10% drop from recent highs bouncing or at least set to bounce by around 1% in Thursday's trade. It's the second time tech has broken through correction levels so far this year. It does look like investors will buy the dip once again in this session today. Now, all this as Russia triggers fresh uncertainty. Nope. Not in the energy space, this time in the crypto space. The Russian central bank warning it could ban both the use and mining of digital assets or cryptocurrencies. It says assets like Bitcoin threaten financial stability and citizens quote well-being. Beijing, if you remember, made sweeping moves to ban crypto activity across China last year too. Now, cybersecurity risks digitization, a greater focus on sustainability and managing year three of an evolving pandemic. Just some of the challenges businesses are facing as we head further into 2022. And global consulting firm Accenture aims to help clients tackle. Accenture has more than 670,000 employees, serving 7,000 clients around the world and operates in 200 cities across 50 different countries. And joining us now is Chair and CEO of Accenture, Julie Sweet. Julie, fantastic to have you on the show. Good morning. Um, We have much to discuss today, including, I know, your panel at the World Economic Forum on Sustainability. But I want to start, given the expanse and breadth of the clients you cover all around the world, what they're saying to you at this moment, how concerned they are about the risks and the outlook, particularly for the pandemic. What are you hearing?
6: Great. Well, thanks, uh, Julia. It's great to, to be here this morning. Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, as much as there is a very important focus on the pandemic and a lot of, you know, focus on things like inflation, mm. the discussions I'm having with CEOs across every industry, there's three dominant themes. There's We're going to deal with volatility and uncertainty by going faster on digital transformation. And we see that really, we call it compressed transformation because it's unbelievable how much companies are willing to take on, not being sequential, uh, but to really transform and change using digital. The second big theme is talent both a talent war, but even more importantly, how do they transform their own talent? And they look to us because, of course, that's how we built our business. We are a major learning organization in addition to what we do for our clients. And then third, it is sustainability, to link to the uh, the WEF discussion. Uh, I was just talking to my team about how really all of us are having that con- conversation about how to embed sustainability. And, you know, I've I've often said we think sustainability is is the next digital, certainly for our business uh, and the the impact of what it's gonna have across industries.
0: You know, it's fascinating of all the things I read about what you've been saying and what Accenture has been looking at and the focus for, for your customers. It was that point that you made about talent and about moving on from the discussion about the future of work being are we physical, are we digital to how do we attract the best people and make sure that everyone's contribution, wherever they are and however they're uh, doing their work, is the best it can be. Just talk about Accenture first, though, because you do have hundreds of thousands of employees. What's the split in terms of those that are physically in your offices versus working from home today?
6: You know, that's something that changes literally week to week right now and has been for the last two years because of the pandemic. And so, you know, we were com- fully open in, uh, in the U.S., for example, and just a couple of weeks ago, we closed down our office. Uh, but what's really important, uh, you know, and it's a great question for not just us, but for others, is that we have moved beyond this idea of spaces and places to mm-hmm. how do you affect effectively get your work done, right? And uh, and how do you connect to clients and to each other? We call it omni-connections, and that's both technology, it's cultural, and it's leadership development.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Um, a member of my family, and I know she won't mind me mentioning, was recently hired into a role where they said, look, you um, You know, it's interesting because you're not quite qualified for the role, but your talent and your skills are so great. We want to bring you in and make sure you can take on this role very quickly. And it it reminded me of something that you'd said about looking at people's skills, perhaps rather than the role. And then you can bring brilliant people in and then the role will evolve. Talk to me about how that and the importance of that as we head through 2020 years, particularly as here in the United States. We talk about the skills gap, bringing people in from the sidelines, perhaps, too. Getting great people in and then evolution to roles is perhaps more important.
6: Julia, you're really putting um, a a focus, I think, on something that's super important that the leading companies are doing, which is um, they are focusing on skills. And the first reason is because we know that skills are becoming uh, obsolete very fast uh, because of the change in digital and the use of technology. And it also enables you to uh, open up the talent um, pipeline. So, for example, in the U.S., We will hire, 20% of our entry-level hiring this year will be into our apprenticeship program. Our apprenticeship program does not focus on four-year degrees. It focuses on skills and potential. And then we have a state-of-the-art learning program for all of our people because skills are going to evolve. We also have a database of all of the skills of our client-facing people. And we can use algorithms to identify who can be upskilled into new hot areas. And so as you think about what is the lead, what are the leading companies going to be talking about in the next two to three years from a talent perspective, it will be about skills. It will be about the use of AI to help their people develop their skills and to transform organizations.
0: Is that something that can apply to, to smaller and medium-sized businesses? Because, you know, you're an enormous company. The access to technology, to AI, to be able to pinpoint people and upskill them is something very different, perhaps, from what a small and medium-sized business can do. How does it translate it translate?
6: You know, it's a, it's a great question because, of course, many jobs are in the small and medium-sized uh, right. enterprises. and And here's, again, where you can leverage technology. There's a lot of learning that's online. And so the clarity that a small and medium-sized business needs to have is what's their business strategy and what are the skills that they need? And that's, of course completely within their knowledge base and control and then how do you partner? How do you collaborate with other learning organizations and even within other um, industry organizations to actually build out uh, the learning and make it affordable. And uh, we're seeing that uh, start to happen in many of the industry, uh, particularly around the associations, like in, um, for example, Nam in the U.S., you know, focuses very much on talent development and the use of digital. And so it's super exciting to see this becoming accessible through technology to all sizes of companies.
0: I, I want to talk to you about sustainability, too, because It sort of flows from this conversation. I know you at Accenture, one of the things that you did very early on was say, look, we're going to be completely transparent. There are things that we have to fix. There are things that perhaps we wouldn't like to be transparent about. But that's what we need to be today in order to tackle some of these issues. And I know um, some of the research that you did said less than half of your clients actually understand how and how they improve and take action to improve their sustainability, whatever the different metric within that barrier is. Did those sort of number that that didn't understand how they go about it, were they honest about it?
6: Julia, I think your focus on action is absolutely the right one, because it is about moving from commitment to action. Mm. And so that's why we focused our research on are companies ready? Uh, and that's where you get that statistic, where I think people were absolutely uh, being, you know, very open about it. And in fact, today we just launched new research to help our clients move from commitment to action. Uh, it's talking about, um, you know, measuring ESG and creating value. It demonstrates that, you know, companies are still behind on the basics, data technology and skills, which should sound familiar because those are the same things that are needed really across the enterprise for all of our business priorities. Uh, And so I think focusing on data, technology, and skills as a roadmap of moving from commitment to action is absolutely critical. And that's what we're doing with clients, right? You know, we're working with um, Best Buy, for example, that announced they were creating a thousand new jobs and 30% would be diverse. And they're partnering with us to make sure that that's meeting their sustainability goals around diversity. We're partnering with Shiseido, who's putting sustainability at the it's part of their business priority on global skincare. And we're working with them to upgrade, uh, upskill their talent as well mm-hmm. as build in net carbon, net zero. And so these are where companies are focusing on those three things to make sure that they can make that pivot.
0: Yeah, today it's a choice. It's becoming ever increasingly um, a necessity. And I think once we get standards for this that that they can be compared with other companies on, um, then shareholders, investors perhaps will um, be really forced to centralise this in their thinking too. And I'm not sure we're there yet, but Julie, we'll reconvene on this conversation because we've run out of time. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. And we'll speak again soon. Um, Julie Sweet, Chair and CEO of Accenture there. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'll call it a correction deflection. Tech stocks are rolling back in early trade on Wall Street. A nice bounce after the Nasdaq fell into correction territory, so down 10% from recent highs yesterday. Tech investors hope earnings will lend support to the sector under intense pressure from interest rate rise uncertainties. Netflix is the first of the fangs to report results after the bell today. Lots of talk, too, that the Fed will tighten rates by a more aggressive half a percentage point at its March meeting. But commodity investors remain undeterred. We're seeing big moves already this year as investors bet on strong demand. Brent crude currently up 12% year-to-date. Coal coalescing up more than 31%. Steel looking steely up 4%. And lumber, well, limbering up a 7% year-to-date too. Now... An electric car with the potential to be the greenest of them all, so says the company, the German makers of this family-friendly hatchback. A tooting one big advantage if you're living in the city, and a sunny day will help too. It's called the Sono Sion, and its battery can be topped up using solar panels which cover the body. The company is taking pre-orders ahead of its launch next year, with a purchase price of around $32,000, though there have been development delays. And it's outsourcing production to a subsidiary of Evergrande Group, which itself faces economic headwinds. So much to discuss. And Lauren Hahn is the CEO and joins us now. Lauren, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start with the technology here because I was reading about it earlier. Patent projected injection molding that yields solar cells embedded in the polymer. So effectively, the car itself is a solar panel. Is that right?
7: That's uh, that's correct. And uh, nice to be here, uh, Julia. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a solar electric vehicle. It's... Uh, totally covered in solar, also the side panels. And we have this patented proprietary solar technology, which we, uh, you know, developed over the last couple of years. That is, uh, you know, being automotive grade, uh, being crash resistance, being highly scalable and cost effective.
0: You know, it's interesting. What I've heard from others, certainly in this space, is that adding solar as part of the um, energy provision for, for the vehicle um, doesn't get it very far in terms of functionality. So this has to be targeted to people that do shorter journeys. Uh, Germany, for example, I think, where the average commutes around, what, 10 miles per day. Does that resonate?
7: Exactly. So Mm. uh, this car is a perfect commuter car. The average German is commuting 10 miles. You're correct. And this vehicle here is recharging on average per day, 10 miles in a week. It's 70 miles through the sun. Additionally, of course, I have a battery on board. I can recharge it just as a regular electric vehicle. But we have this convenient feature, this thing where you don't have to think about recharging, charging infrastructure, range anxiety. All the things where people might think about electric vehicles today, well, it's not the time yet. But this vehicle here is the perfect vehicle for you.
0: So there'll be people that look at this and say the solar part of this is just a gimmick and actually you're just going to be relying on the battery. So, so how much, if we take one of those customers that's just doing that minor commute on a day-to, day-to-day basis, how often are they going to have to recharge this, assuming there's a significant degree of sun, I would assume? How often are they actually going to have to charge it and how much provision is that solar really going to provide?
7: Well, for an um, average German commuter, this right. means four times more range, so four times less charging, um, compared to a regular electric vehicle with the same battery size, same distance driven over a period of two months. And that's the point, that's the whole thing about solar.
4: Mm.
7: It's taking away this fear of recharging, this fear of uh, range anxiety, and it, making it more convenient, uh, energy efficient, and even, uh, you know, you're saving costs. Energy is coming from the sun for free.
0: You've talked about a twofold path to market, selling pre-orders, selling, selling this vehicle, but also perhaps selling the technology to other EV makers. Have you managed to sell this technology to, to anyone else at this stage?
7: Yes, exactly. Uh, we're building up our company on two pillars. That's the car itself, the world's first SUV. And the second pillar is selling and licensing this technology to B2B customers. Trucks, train, buses, camper van. Just imagine what potential is out there. And we have secured over 10 contracts and LOIs already with industry leaders like MIN and others. And that's uh, showing us there's huge potential in this market to make the whole logistic industry more cleaner.
0: Can you name some of the others out of interest? Because I do think this is an important part of the business if you can make it happen.
7: Yeah, sure. Uh, it's Easy Mile. This is a French autonomous shuttle company. Just think about a t- autonomous shuttle also having now energy autonomy. Um, third one is uh, is Ari Motors. It's a last-mile delivery vehicle uh, from Germany. Think about last-mile delivery vehicles being short-distance driven, perfect for solar. And uh, um, a fourth one is even boats, Wallaby boats. It's a boat manufacturer from Hamburg, Germany. Uh, where you have a huge surface uh, driving uh, very, very uh, short distances. And uh, that's that's perfect for, for
0: solar. Two quick questions for you because I've seen speculation about this. Have you secured a contracted manufacturer agreement um, with Sweden's NEVs? Because this is one of the questions that are being asked. And and the second thing is, do you have enough money? This is such a cash-intensive business. I know you've raised money, but do you have enough money?
6: Well,
7: look, uh, we have been with our contract manufacturer, Nas in Sweden, working together since 2019. And we are in close exchange every day, uh, making it happen. And the production of design is currently uh, planned for 2023 and nothing has changed on that.
0: Is that a promise? They're coming in 2023? There've been some delays.
7: Exactly. So it, It's, uh, it's uh, our uh, plan for 2023 as we always okay. stated in the in the public and uh yeah looking good
0: we shall see keep up to date with us please good to um good to talk to you and um good to check your progress lauren Hahn. thank you so much bye you. thank you okay who's to blame for europe's sky high energy prices the international energy is pointing the finger we speak to the executive director next Welcome back to First Move. The International Energy Agency is accusing Russia of orchestrating an energy crisis in Europe. It says Russia is sending around 25% less natural gas to Europe than is usual at this time of year in order to in part exert political pressure. Russia has denied it. It provides around a third of Europe's gas and experts say just a 20% increase in supplies would cut European gas prices by around half. The IEA also just published its monthly oil outlook and predicts demand this year will exceed pre-COVID levels. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is the IEA's executive director, Fatih Bureau. So fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Let's start with Russia. Very concerning. And you've been very pointed in your comments regards their behavior.
8: So uh, thank you very much. <clears throat> yes, in Europe, uh, we are seeing a natural gas prices uh, going higher and higher Uh, compared to historical averages. Gas prices are five to six times higher. And not only the natural gas prices themselves are higher, since natural gas is a major input to electricity generation, we see electricity prices are uh, skyrocketing. I mean, there are three reasons uh, behind it. One, the demand for natural gas in Europe is extremely strong, His, compared to historical averages, very strong uh, growth in natural gas demand. Second, on the production side, uh, we have seen in Europe and elsewhere several planned and unplanned outages from the uh, fields. This is the second one. And third, the uh, different parts of the world, such as Brazil, China, two major giants, had. Very dry year uh, last year. As a result, their hydropower generation was very low, Mm. and they have compensated this gap with importing a lot of gas LNG, which shrink the global uh, gas markets. These are the three uh, important factors. But on top of that, the uh, behavior, in my view, the strategic behavior of the. Most important uh, player in the European uh, gas market as an exporter, which is which uh, supplies about 45 uh, percent of the European gas export, Russia, did decrease their exports to Europe about 25 percent lower than, for example, the year uh, before. And when we look at the other countries uh, who are providing uh, exports through pipelines, Norway. Uh, Azerbaijan, Algeria—they all increase their exports to Europe, whereas we have seen a decline of exports of Russia to Europe, which, uh, together with the low gas storage levels in Europe, uh, 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 help to increase the gas mm. prices. Uh, I uh, mean, the
0: Russians—the the Russians are saying, "Look, we're fulfilling our contractual obligations," and they are. So they're not effectively doing anything wrong, but they're just not providing more than they than they are contractually obligated to do, and they could. And we know that they're providing more to the Chinese, for example, than they're obligated to do. So the capacity is there. You think they're playing politics at a very important time politically.
8: I think you uh, and uh, your colleagues, uh, the audience can uh, uh, decide better if I can give you some numbers. Today, Russia has uh, uh, more than 100, at least 100 a million cubic meters per day of uh, spare capacity, which means, which means, easily, they can increase their exports to Europe by 30 percent, which would immediately comfort the uh, European gas markets and would help the prices to go down, and uh, give a support to economic growth in uh, Europe. Especially, uh, there are vulnerable segments of population; they would be in a better situation. Mm. But Russia is not uh, doing this, it's a choice. It is true that they are, uh, 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 they are fulfilling their obligations. But if you want to be uh, considered as a reliable partner, a reliable supplier, in days like this, uh, like the other uh, uh, pipeline uh, exporters like uh, Norway, Azerbaijan, Algeria, you can increase your uh, gas exports. or provide more gas for the uh, spot uh, sales which they are not uh, doing. And as you mentioned, they are increasing their exports, as our study finds out, to uh, China at a significant amount.
0: If there is an incursion or an invasion or conflict in Ukraine, and that's obviously being discussed, how high might oil prices go, might energy prices go? Have you done any forecasting? Can you you give us a sense of of what you're thinking?
8: I think such a huge geopolitical event uh, would have a, a major, major implications on the uh, gas prices, if not uh, leading uh, uh, turmoil. But uh, I can tell you uh, that this would not be a good news for uh, the, uh, for Russia in terms of gas. Because uh, when you make long-term contracts, uh, you have to trust your partner that under any conditions uh, you will get this gas. And if the uh, the consumers uh, believe uh, that you are going to cut gas energy at difficult times, you will lose uh, trust for many years to come. Even today, I can tell you. Uh, when I look at the gas industry, not only Russia, but uh, around the world, uh, gas industry, They are not getting good marks from millions of uh, consumers around the world, because gas has been presented to us, the consumers, as a reliable, affordable, and uh, in relative terms, a clean energy source. And the I problem think, is,
0: uh, the yes. problem is the problem is fact is that nations around the world rely on their energy supplies that's the problem there's excess reliance too so whether they're a good partner or not that their energy is needed at least today um, forgive me but I want to ask you about the nord stream 2 pipeline because the germans are considering it seems a permanent suspension would that be a good idea in your mind and what would be the consequences for, for energy prices and for the market, if that were the decision?
8: I think your previous uh, statement or your question are very much uh, linked. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, the key, uh, key word, the magic word is, is uh, uh, diversification. And if, for example, in the case of uh, Europe, uh, Europe is going through these difficult days because Europe is, for a strategic good uh, like uh, natural gas, is relying a a disproportionate uh, way to one single supplier, Russia. I think this is not a a good decision from a security of energy point of view. And it is today uh, natural gas and Russia, uh, tomorrow it can be lithium uh, when we look at the uh, the clean energy transition. So diversification is, uh, I think, the uh, most important. a a way to look at it, and Nord Stream 2, in my view, should be uh, considered in that
0: context. So fight fire with fire, a permanent suspension?
8: I really hope that the things will not uh, go to that uh, direction, but uh, the governments need to make sure that they are ready for any such instances, and it is the reason one of my A recommendation to European ministers are uh, they should have obligations for uh, storing gas at certain levels in each country, as they are uh, doing for uh, oil. There is no harmonized European regulation now to have uh, gas storage at a certain level. I think it would be a good idea to look at that issue as well.
0: I agree storage quotas i hope this moment if none others forces the conversation to be had because it's desperately required yes. um fatty Biral, sir thank you so much for talking to us once again and great to have you on the show the executive director there of the iea we'll speak soon sir please stay with first move more to come Welcome back to First Move. And finally, you may recall just before Christmas, a CEO fired 900 employees in a Zoom call. Well, Vishal Garg is now returning to full-time duties at Better.com following a leave of absence to, quote, reflect on his leadership. As the board puts it, a new head of human resources has also been appointed after the fired employees were left high and dry. They were promised a follow-up email from HR, but one employee told CNN he immediately lost access to his company, computer, phone, email and message. Services. He's back, but is he better? We hope. And finally, on first move, good grief! Look at this reef. In a recent discovery off the coast of Tahiti, this enormous coral reef has pristine rose-shaped corals blossoming. It is what's called the ocean's twilight zone, about 70 meters down, where there's just enough light to sustain life. I wanted to show you because it's just incredibly beautiful. Look at that. Our nature. That's it for the show. If you have missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at J CNN. In the meantime, stay safe, connect the world with Larry Madoo is next and I'll see you tomorrow.